name's James Glenn. I'm the co-director of the Mid-America ATTC, as well as the associate administrator and business strategist for Truman Medical Center's Behavioral Health, which is a safety net and essential um, hospital in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. In addition to these roles, I've also been a supportive housing consultant for the last 17 years, really specializing in uh, program design and implementation, typically for chronically homeless individuals with severe and persistent mental illness and or substance use disorders. The six session learning community will provide the foundational knowledge needed to help your agencies, you or your agencies really better understand housing as an intervention and should help you hone in what role you and or your organization can play to advance affordable housing opportunities in your community. As a reminder, instead of the traditional PowerPoint uh, lecture webinar format, these sessions were designed to be structured discussions. Um, I've been facilitating each one of these sessions and we'll be asking our guest panelists today, I have four of them, um, to really share their experience and lessons learned on the subject matter that we're talking about. These are not scripted, so I really um, don't know what anybody's gonna be able to say or going to say, and it's really meant to be authentic and give people exposure to seasoned professionals and their experience in the industry. Um, as a reminder for everybody that's participating, um, there, these are recorded Zoom sessions that will be converted into podcast series. So please uh, be mindful of background noise, have your mute button on until we have discussion um, that makes everything easier and, and don't be afraid to be camera shy or please don't be camera shy. We like it when we can, especially when we're having discussion, when we can see you and, and talk. It helps with the dialogue. Uh, we do plan to allow time for audience members to ask questions and share their own experience related to housing. Uh, please follow instructions on the screen. I think Bree's going to put some instructions up on the screen to use your chat box. If you've not used your chat box before, and we will be keeping track of those, um, both Bree and Alex from the ATTC will be keeping track of those so that we can make sure we get you um, answers to those questions. The topic for today's session is funding sources and development. And I'm going to go ahead and just start with letting the guest panelists introduce themselves because um, I've got them from all over the place. So, Greg, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Unmute. <laughs> You're still muted, Greg. There okay, we go. I got it. Sorry right. about that, James. That's okay. Hi, everybody, and I'm glad to be here today. Uh, my name is Greg Shin, and I'm the Associate Director and Chief Housing Officer for Rental Health Association Oklahoma, and I've been in this position since 2001, and I previously ran a homeless shelter on Wall Street in New York that was designed for people with mental illnesses and was a street outreach worker before that, and then I came to Oklahoma to help oversee the planning and development of the affordable housing portfolio that we've been uh, investing in since uh, the early 90s. And we currently have over 1,500 units of affordable and supportive housing across the state of Oklahoma, most of it in the city of Tulsa and around the metropolitan area, but our fastest growing market is now in the Oklahoma City area. And we use both public and private sources to do that. And we also provide service delivery and uh, other advocacy policy initiatives. So that's kind of my background for this conversation today. Yeah, really appreciate having you again. Jared? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Jared Sanderson. I'm the Housing Development uh, Director for EPIC, the Grooming Project here in Kansas City. Uh, that's a, an organization that trains homeless single moms in dog grooming, six-month training program 
and then places them at Petco, PetSmart, and other salons' uh, livable wages. So uh, before that, I ran a, a housing development organization for three and a half years that I started, uh, mostly single family, some tax credit stuff. I've uh, been involved in social services for 15 years, and I just finished um, some apples and peanut butter. So if there's peanut butter in my beard and you see it, please tell me. <laughs> Uh, be a pal and don't let me go through this whole thing with it in there. So uh, that's it. <laughs> Jocelyn. Hi, I'm Jocelyn Flieger. I'm with a supportive housing developer called the Vestino Group. We're based out of Springfield, Missouri. I'm here in Kansas City, Missouri, so I get to see James regularly. I um, am a supportive housing developer. Um, we work in 12 states. We've got about 30 projects now at this point. And um, yeah, so our whole mission is to, at Messina Group, is to um, make sure that all of the projects that we develop address a broader need, give back to the community, set an example, and inspire the people who are living and working at those projects. And so really excited to talk about housing and how we can create more affordable housing. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for thanks for agreeing to do this, Jennifer. Um, yes, this is Jennifer Titwell. I uh, currently work for the City of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I have worked um, in the housing space for about 20 years at the state, and for uh, about 10 years, and then I also worked at um, uh, HUD. Uh, so I saw a lot of the special needs supportive housing um, uh, projects around our region. Uh, and currently, um, we are working on a housing policy here in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and one of our uh, key pieces is trying to uh, implement our affirmatively fair housing plan which includes um, making sure that we uh, provide supportive housing to those most in need. Yeah, I love it. And thank you. I know you don't have a camera, so I appreciate you participating um, on this too, Jennifer. I, I, all you guys have great experience. So, so let me give a little bit of context since we're actually into, like I said in the intro, session number five of a six-part series. Um, so in the first couple of sessions, for a recap, for those of you who have not listened in, we started with kind of a basic understanding of housing on Housing 101. We talked a little bit about this economic argument, which I want to set the stage for our discussion today, <clears throat> because the theme has come up multiple times um, in, the, in all the theories that we've done in terms of this, that housing is a business transaction and is a business industry, and we need to understand that. So, Part of the context I want to set when we start talking about funding and opportunity, really understanding the numbers around housing. And I just want to, a quick reminder, I'm hearing some feedback. So um, if you could make sure everybody's on mute, that would be helpful. I hope that's, I'm not sure if that's me or not. So, um, and then when we start dialogue, we'll unmute those. So I think actually Jared and Greg were both on sessions when we started talking a little bit about numbers. But to give everybody ballparks, really the research, there's been over two decades to show of research, um, as most of you may know, showing that providing housing options for people that are homeless and at risk of homelessness is actually cheaper than leaving them homeless, right? And I think, Jared, you did a, a part um, where you talked a little bit about the current cost uh, worth around $35,000 per person per year. I've seen them as high as $56,000 per person per year. Break that down for people. 
it's $9,353 per person per day to leave them homeless. That's what it costs the taxpayer, right? So comparatively speaking, in most supportive housing sites, and Greg and Jocelyn and Jared and Jennifer, as we get into the details, we can talk about your experience because it does vary on based on region. We're talking somewhere between $11,000 per person per year to $18,000 per person per year, which breaks down to somewhere between $30 and $50 per person per day to house them with subsidies. And a lot depends on, on the package you put together, as Greg, I think, talked about in the last session a little bit. Um, but we're really in that range. And what I always tell people when we start with numbers, it's important to understand that even if we're wrong, which you can Google it yourself, find out your own numbers in your local area, even if you're wrong, you have not seen any research that shows you cut those first numbers in half, double the other ones, and it's still cost efficient to provide housing for people. And I need people to understand that when we talk about funding and development. This is a business, and we need to understand the numbers behind that. So I wanted to set that stage as we start diving into um, conversations about the types of funding that we typically use. And a reminder to our guest panelists, um, when we use acronyms, I'm going to try to pause you because I know we've been doing this for a long time. You can spell out what that acronym is, okay? That's just my little context that I want to provide. So I'm going to start here with some of the questions I have in terms of just sharing the experience that you have. And I think we'll start with you, Jared, sharing um, with everybody on the call some of the typical funding sources that each of you work with in your um, area over the last, you know, let's say decade. And then I'll see if we can kind of close the gap and we can kind of play off each other. How's that sound? So Jared, why don't you talk a little bit about the different type of funding and maybe even the different type of categories you look at in those funding, okay? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think breaking it into development versus the kind of the operations or the case management side. Um, on the operations side, um, a lot of the, the programs that I've worked with and around are HUD programs, um, voucher-based, um, so it, it the better specific one, HUD bash, or uh, just kind of traditional uh, HUD Section 8 vouchers that cover rents for apartments that have been approved. I've worked in and around those, um, have worked with uh, some of the rapid rehousing programs. Uh, they're all funded basically the same way, and it's the same basic idea. Uh, a lot of good can happen there. Uh, my interest was more on the development side. Uh, I've worked with low-income housing tax credits, so LIHTC, um, and it's each state is a little bit different. Uh, well, some states are a lot different. It's a federal bucket of money that then um, is delivered through states, and I think Jocelyn probably can speak to that uh, more thoroughly than I can. Um, but it's it's certainly helpful when you're able to offset some uh, relevant portion of the construction costs um, because that obviously lowers rents because you don't have to pay back a mortgage or a big, as big a piece of a mortgage when construction is subsidized. Um, so that's I think there's there's a lot of value there too. Um, one of my big interests with the housing development nonprofit that I helped found and uh, was private financing uh, and, and private donations for developments so that we're able to be a little more flexible with who we can accept. Um, and so and really, I think on the property management side too, uh, being able to have more control over um, the rules and regulations that apply to the people coming in. I mean, there is a set standard uh, federal fair housing laws that um, there's no, you're going to adhere to those regardless. Um, but some of the niche-based funding that is bucketed around certain populations 
uh, again, really helpful for that population, but also pretty restrictive if you've got uh, kind of a broad-based need in your community and you can only house certain people. So um, across those spectrums, I think what you just brought up is still relevant in all of them, that um, even if the cost savings doesn't materialize in year one, uh, by year five, um, if somebody has been able to remain stably housed, um, their access of emergency services generally drops off pretty substantially, um, and it just ends up being cheaper. So I, on all those fronts, regardless of how it's funded, it generally ends up being cost effective uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, that's been my experience too. Greg, I know you've had a lot of experience with a lot of different types of funding. Tell me, you know, kind of give us a summary of your experience with the bigger ones. Well, we've really tried to um, use both public and private resources. Um, in the very beginning, though, um, what we really have done, we've had um, a lot of success with major capital campaigns to raise private money um, initially. Um, and so we started one of those back in 2001, and we raised over $5 million, and then we we set another goal of $30 million and we actually surpassed that and raised about $65 million. And then, and then, um, and then at the end of that, because of what we were able to leverage, which is when you have the private money, you can, you then have equity that you can leverage these public dollars with. Sometimes what they call match is a requirement and that would be your owner equity. So what your match is as the owner or the developer, sometimes that has to be a part of the subsidy mix. So in any case, then our private sources always meet the match requirement for us to leverage the public dollars, whether that's home funds through the Home Investment Partnership Program or, or whether it's the National Housing Trust Fund, NHTF monies that are now being let out um, through the federal government. So all of these sources that can originate out of HUD or that are all part of the federal budget. And that's something that I think everybody needs to pay attention to when you look at the federal budget and appropriations, when you're an advocate for these sources, we need to be very mindful of the appropriations budgets. And often these subsidies are all included in what they call the transportation and HUD bill, T-HUD. And so as advocates for sources of federal dollars that pass through, uh, we wanna be mindful and advocate with the National Low Income Housing Coalition and other advocates. We wanna sign on and we wanna advocate for these federal pass-through dollars that come back to our states, which are critically important. So we've used all of them to leverage both, uh, to leverage private money and then the private money can leverage the public, as I've said. So. That's really how we've been able to do it. And when you have private money and you can go out and you're a buyer on the market, you can negotiate great prices for existing property. That's a great and then you can leverage public subsidies to, to you know, improve the properties or whatever. So substantially, that's how we've been able to create our portfolio over time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Jocelyn, what about you, experience? Sure, so we typically most, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We typically utilize, like Jared had mentioned earlier, 9%. There's a lot of funding that has deeper income targeting for the populations that I think a lot of us who are um, panelists and then who are on this call are used to serving. And so there's deeper incentives for us to target 
um, households with 30% um, area median income and below. So we use a lot of National Housing Trust Fund dollars. And then we also use a lot of federal home loan bank dollars as well. And so those are the three main sources of funding that we utilize. Um, and I kind of want to echo what Jared said is this is Blytech is an IRS program. And so there are a lot of regulations and compliance and things like that. And so it isn't always the most effective for every population. There's just certain things like that with Blytech, you're not going to be able to serve people with a lot of um, other, you know, restraints. And so the, th the nice thing about Litech is, is it's a great program for um, the people it serves. But yeah, there's definitely some gaps that need to be filled through campaigns and things like that. So. Good. And, I, and I'll come back to some of these. I, I know that when we do a deeper dive, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Federal Home Loan Bank and things like that. Jennifer, I want um, to turn it to you and give us your experience, both maybe as, as this, you know, working for the city and um, as your time working as part of the federal government. So, um, so we used a lot of community development block grant money, which um, everybody, most folks know as CDBG and home dollars um, to um, basically buy down the, the rental level. Uh, a lot of these, this, this funding source um, is a way to get equity into the, um, into the, um, the actual project uh, and, uh, and be able to help uh, reduce the amount of the rent um, that uh, you would be charging. Uh, we uh, at the city try to use our um, home dollars in developments that typically would not um, try to use home dollars uh, because uh, we're trying to keep those uh, rents affordable over a 20, per 20 year period. And so it takes a lot of deep subsidies in order to do that. So we're using some of our home dollars to try to um, increase the number of units that we can use um, in, in either affordable housing units or in uh, units that are market rate. The other thing that we're doing, we're using emergency shelter grants uh, to help some of um, the folks that are beginning to do uh, youth aging out of foster care or just youth homelessness period, trying to increase their funding levels so that there can be youth hubs around the city in order for us to be able to house those youth um, at a faster rate. So those are some of the things we're doing. Um, the other thing is a lot of cities are beginning to uh, have these special taxes uh, where the tax comes in and actually issues for not only housing but economic development in distressed areas. And that has been a big source of gap financing, especially since Missouri no longer has their state um, tax credit. Right. So, so this special fund is being used in order to fill some of that gap. And I know there are several states around Missouri, uh, St. Louis being one of them, that have special housing trust funds or 
special taxes that uh, they used to fill gaps. That's right. I'm glad you brought that up. So, so part of the reason that I just start with this question and get people's different experiences is to let people know. And if you're listening on the call and you don't have a lot of experience with this, you know, start with just writing some of these things down. Even if it's not in your state, you may be asking, for example, um, does your local housing authority or does your local city or county have something similar to this? So I'll just kind of prep the rest of the conversations when we go into the deep dives about that. I'll add two more things that we've had a lot of experience with, obviously, as a safety net provider. Our, not all states have this, but our Department of Mental Health and our Department of Social Services, for example, some states do have this, allocate money to housing um, as a direct assistance program. And so we can use state funds sometimes to help subsidize uh, people with mental illness um, to be able to keep them housed. So it's different for every state and you have to kind of contact your state to find out that. The other thing I wanted to mention since Jennifer talked about transition age youth and we did a, we did a whole separate um, podcast series on transition age youth and special populations, <clears throat> but there are more and more housing authorities that have set asides specifically for youth coming out of foster care um, and how to get them stabilized since the rate of homelessness for somebody exiting foster care is so high. So I just mentioned that and again, some of these, the common denominators among all of the things you guys were talking about is city, county, federal, um, state, and then private. So we're gonna do this kind of deep dive as we go into the, these, um, I have really four categories, those four categories with our guests and ask them to talk a little bit more about their experience with some of these ones. And what I would ask you as a guest panelist is, what do people need to know on this call about these particular funding sources that you've learned over time? Like how can we convert it into kind of a common uh, language for people so it's not so confusing? Does that make sense? So James, can I just add one? This is Jennifer. Can I add just one thing? In yeah. the in the um, the bill that's going through Congress right now, mm -hmm. uh, there is some funding for both 202 and 811. So 811, I know, had been used a lot for uh, at risk. Um, families and at-risk individuals, and they actually have funding in um, the bill, the appropriations bill this year. So, uh, so that would be a source of funding if that uh, stays in the budget. And as Greg mentioned earlier, this is really important. I think that's one of the big takeaways for everybody is you got to be an advocate to know where your dollars go if you really want to be in the housing game. You have to pay attention to the federal budgets and the city and state budgets um, to really make sure that we're putting some money behind um, what we're talking about. Just so for clarity, um, uh, 811 project has historically been for disabled and a 202 project that Jennifer was mentioning has historically been set aside for, dis uh, for elderly and I think disabled if I remember correctly. Um, but those are the two differentiating funding sources that Jennifer was talking about, right Jennifer? Did I get that right? Yes. <laughs> Okay, um, so <clears throat> so let's talk about real quick, and we'll do just kind of a round robin with you guys um, about, um, let's just start with federal sources, HUD, SAMHSA, HHS, like your experience with that, we can even kind of include um, probably tax credit in here too. Um, your experiences with that, what do people need to know based on your experience that you wish you would have probably known as you got in the game. And, and Jared, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to you and get this started and then we'll round robin it, okay? Yeah, sure. Um, let's, I think 
I'll provide my two cents on tax credits. Um, again, a good a good resource uh, serves a, a broad population, but does have some restrictions. I think on the my experience as being the nonprofit, um, really as being the service provider in one, and then being the owner developer in another, along with the service provider, um, there are some incentives to taking the risk of the construction loans uh, financially if you're a nonprofit. Um, and so if you have the capacity to do that, um, then I think it's, it's worth considering a lot of organizations on the nonprofit side just provide the service. And then it's kind of hit or miss if the, uh, if the operations budget actually covers your costs. Um, it's, it's difficult to build that in when it's not a priority. Um, and if you're, if you're talking a 50 unit building, uh, if that's full-time or part-time, it just depends. Uh, but if you're going full-time, if you have a full-time position built in, uh, then asking for that position to be paid for in the operations budget um, is a pretty steep lift, but I think is worth asking for. And then if you're willing to take some of the risk on the, the loan side, especially if it's not long-term debt, if it's, if it's construction loan debt that's safer and not nearly as big of a risk, um, then it may be worth trying to get a bigger piece of the developer fee so you can stretch it out for however many years, 10 or 15, to give yourself some breathing room on the operation side. I think that's one of the struggles, especially if the development is really driven by um, players who may not have a good understanding of the service side, is there's just not enough money designated for service support. And if it's not there, when you find out it's not there, it's a little too late to start restructuring the budget because you're into the service side. So um, and there's a whole bunch of moving parts there that I think, again, there are other people who can speak to as well. But on the service side specifically, um, that money can, can look great on paper out of the gate and then quickly become not enough, especially if you're dealing with severe, uh, if it's 100% special needs, for example, um, and you don't have any market rate mix, or you know, if that's going to be a pretty heavy lift on the service side. So um, on the 202811 side, I've, I've definitely had some experience there too. I found those to be really great programs um, on the service side. I wasn't part of the developments. I inherited eight buildings, 440 units, um, but it, it really was, uh, it, it did do exactly what it intended to do. Uh, the biggest struggle I had there was on the property management side. Um, the conviction eviction background, it's just difficult. It's tough to navigate that space. Uh, and I'm going to be a broken record on that because every single podcast I've been involved in, I bring that up <laughs> because it's just a big issue and there's no easy fix. Uh, that is a, a one of the only ways to vet risk when you don't have case management or service apparatus. Uh, so it's not unreasonable, but it does create some challenges because a lot of the folks who have the barriers that need this kind of housing have those barriers because they have that background. Uh, so finding ways to address that, I think, can be really helpful. Um, and then the last piece, the SSVF program, I'll talk a little about it, the Supportive Services for Veteran Families. Uh, I found that to be one of the, the more effective um, uh, homeless prevention and rapid rehousing uh, services that I was involved in, and largely because the team was fantastic that I was able to work with. Um, but it was, I mean, that there was the, the housing first approach being embedded in it, um, enough resources to get people stable immediately. And we found pretty regularly that within three to six months, people were completely off of the rent subsidy part. Um, once they had the wow. capacity to stabilize and find their footing, they were okay. And the veteran part made it a bit easier because there were other benefits that they could access potentially that they just weren't aware of. 
Um, but that there really was an efficacy that I saw in allowing people to just be stable first before we start expecting them to try to find ways to change um, what could be a lifelong behavior based in trauma and a lot of other things. So uh, I'll leave it with those because those are the, the primary experiences on the okay. federal side. Greg, let's move to you next. So I think um, from the outset is what is the intended goal? What is your target population? Are you trying to end and prevent homelessness? Are you trying to implement a housing first model? And what is the market demand that you're trying to um, target? So if, if you're looking at homeless populations or chronically homeless populations or vulnerable and at-risk low-income populations, that can be a little bit different. So your low-income housing tax credits can really work for families that are low wage earners at say 60% of area median income or maybe 50%, but you're not gonna get to those deeper subsidies if you're trying to really bring in people that need um, true, if you want true fidelity to housing first models, income cannot be a barrier to access. So therefore you've gotta have the rental subsidies attached to the project. So if you're gonna, do um, LIHTC, you've got to have those deeper subsidies. Sometimes that can be achieved with project-based vouchers that can come through the housing authority or through the state housing finance agency. So that's one way. If you're also looking at um, below 30% of area median income and homeless populations, the National Housing Trust Fund is a great, is a great source. And those National Housing Trust Fund monies, they come out through the state housing finance agencies. And those monies originate from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And then they come out in the federal budget with a state allocation process. And so, again, I referenced the National Low Income Housing Coalition. If you go to their website, you can track the congressional appropriations and what's being negotiated for each of these subsidies and what your state allocation is gonna be. So. Typically, most states have gotten $3 million. If you live in California, I saw some people from Bakersfield on the call here. So um, some states have much more, much more monies coming to them, but Kansas and Missouri and Oklahoma probably got $3 million each, or that was kind of a standard uh, allocation through NHTF. So that's a subsidy that targets the, the below 30% of AMI. The other federal sources in the formula, ESG and CDBG and HAPWA, Housing um, Opportunities for Persons with AIDS, and then also the Home Investment uh, Partnership Program, those all come through the consolidated planning process. So you need to be mindful of what is in your consolidated plan for your project jurisdiction, your PJ, your state is a PJ, your county is a PJ, your city is a PJ, they're an entitlement community. So you need to pay attention to what those sources of funds are and what the priorities are in your city's consolidated plan. And you wanna be an advocate that homeless populations or at-risk youth populations are a priority in the consolidated planning process. So therefore, if you're a developer and you apply for a home funds to serve homeless populations, you're going to target, your application is gonna target the most prioritized population through your project jurisdiction and therefore your application is gonna score really high. And if you try to put National Housing Trust Fund monies 
as another subsidy and you're going to serve below 30% of AMI, then through your state housing finance agency, you're going to have another winning application. So you can have some private capital and you can go after home funds and then you can go after your state housing finance agency and layer housing trust funds. So you have to know where these sources come from, who the priority populations are, and then track what's available and then figure out how to layer these subsidies. And that's kind of the way to target these federal pass-through dollars. Yeah, that's really good. You mentioned a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of them there. Um, you know, I just want to be conscious of the time because I want to make sure that we're going to get some questions. So Jocelyn, give me some, uh, you know, listening to both Jared and Greg talk in terms of the federal, is there anything that you want to add that you've had experience with? Uh, no, I just want to echo the sentiments about the vouchers and how important they are to a LIHTC project um, and making sure that you're actually able to serve uh, the people that you intend to serve and your end goal. And so like a project we have, um, one of our projects did not have project-based vouchers and we're having to deal with a lot of figuring out how to find emergency assistance for them and things like that because the last thing that we want to do as developers is make so. And then echoing on also what Jared said about the service provider and the funding for that, take a developer who understands the value of your, of your expertise um, as a service provider and ensure that, yeah, you are getting some money out of the operating budget, if at all possible, to provide services. So at the Fino Group, we will not ever ask a nonprofit to provide services without providing the funding needed. And a lot of times it comes out of the operating budget. Sometimes it can't, and in those cases, we'll figure out a way to get that money, whether it's through a capital campaign. I write a ton of grants for services because if we don't have services on site, our project's not gonna be successful. Yeah, so I just make sure- Go ahead. Yeah, just make sure you provide, uh, you find a developer who understands that your value. Don't settle for one that only is using your uh, involvement in the project to get those extra points and incentives. Yeah, I was going to echo that. So, um, because not everybody does that, not every developer does that. And so this is why, you know, the partnership's been so great. And they don't always understand special populations or supportive housing also. So I just want to note that. But to, as a point of clarity for everybody that's listening, so when you're putting together really a pro forma, which is really a 15 to 25, 15, 20, 25 year projection, financial projection around a project, you need to know some of these terms. You're really looking for bricks and mortar money, you're looking for operations money, and you're looking for support services money in broad categories, right, is what kind of you guys have been talking about. And you wanna see how that's gonna be sustained over a period of time, because most funding sources are gonna look at the long-term investment in the property. So um, really what Jocelyn's talking about is make sure we don't short ourselves a lot of times, which is where some of the money comes out of to make the project work in support services. We think somebody else will bring it to the table or and those support services is really part of your maintenance plan. So I appreciate you saying that, Jocelyn, that's really important. Jennifer, do you have anything to add on the federal, sor on federal sources or things people should know about federal sources of money? So I definitely wanted to add to what Greg was talking about in terms of the consolidated uh, plan mm -hmm. is that, that that is so important that when they are doing their public hearings for the consolidated plan that uh, folks that are, are serving special needs populations are a part of that discussion uh, so that the funding associated with the consolidated plan co can also follow um, what 
what the constituents are wanting in terms of special needs housing and and have them put preferences in those consolidated plans and try to you know try to get the funds that way otherwise otherwise you'll be competing uh, with all other projects uh, versus having a preference. That's a great point. And trying to say we've had in a couple of podcasts, um, we've had some guests say nothing, nothing about me without me, which I really like that phrase and, and really trying to include anytime you're doing design around housing programs, including the population you're trying to serve, we learn a lot that way. So thank you for bringing that up, Jennifer. Um, let's continue to move on just in interest of time. I want to talk a little bit about private sources because we've touched, uh, Jennifer touched on city and county um, and we can come back to that, but Federal Home Loan Bank, Jocelyn mentioned, um, and maybe we'll start there. Jocelyn, could you give an overview of Federal Home Loan Bank and kind of your experience and then I'll round robin around any other private sources of funds people should know about and be aware of? Yeah, we use Federal Home Loan Bank as a gap on a lot of our, as gap funding on a lot of our projects for construction. Um, it's a super easy source of funding. Um, I think we get up to $750,000. We can apply for up to $750,000. And the federal home loan banks are um, broken down by region. So you can go on their website and figure out which region um, applies to your state. So here in Missouri, I think we go through federal home loan bank of either Des Moines or Topeka, I'm blanking right now. I, I, we go to all yeah. of them. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So, so we, um, it's very easy. The compliance is simple and they target people that are below, households that are below 50% area median income and a lot of the different um, uh, federal home loan bank regions prioritize homelessness and supportive housing. And so um, we're always, we always are fairly competitive in those applications because um, it aligns very well. And it's, the compliance afterwards is really easy and simple. They just want to make sure that we're serving people that are at or below 50% area median income and that we're providing the services on site that we said we would. Yeah, yeah that's helpful. A lot of people and projects I've worked on uses Federal Home Loan Bank. They've, um, it's been a, it's a very large source of gap financing, like Jasmine was saying. Jared, do you have any other, in terms of private grants or private funding sources that you've had experience with that people should know about? Um, if, we're, if we're bucketing that separate from um, donations, uh, I, I'll, I'll defer to what was already said. Okay. Because I think that's a whole different, like private equity is a whole different monster uh, separate from federal home loan banks and, and more uh, some of the more formal financial institutions. Right. Greg? Um, <clears throat> yes. But I said we've, we have spearheaded very specific um, capital campaigns. These have been multi-year campaigns. And um, the key here is that when we've done this, it's not for a specific building or a specific project. It's for a long range goal to say, try to develop a thousand units of affordable housing, but they're not contributing to a specific project or building or property. So it's not like you have a rendering and you're going out to raise money for that project. Yes, there are capital campaigns that are conducted that way. That's great. But what I'm talking about is a, is a war on homelessness in your community. And to have a long-range multi-year capital campaign that you can bring hundreds or even thousands of donors to. Some would be big philanthropic foundations that can you know provide millions, but some could be small donors. Your donor base could be 
lots of people, almost like a political campaign. And you're, and one of the things that you can do is you can, you can leverage funders because of those cost studies that we talked about that have been done on the front end. So I'll give you an example of that. When I did a cost study in Central Florida, um, you know, we made the case of how much more expensive it was to allow homelessness to exist than to provide the affordable and supportive housing. And then Florida hospitals contributed $2 million to the supportive housing. So you can leverage private sector money because they're looking at the costs that can be avoided in the private sector, in the hospital system, if they have people in housing and not on the street. So when you look at who your donor base is or who your investors are, and you're looking at private money, you have to very creatively in what's your marketing strategy. You have to really, you have to really put on your corporate hat here and think about your marketing strategy and why are you a good value and why should you be invested in? And one other thing I'd just like to add to that quickly is that the economic impact is not just public costs avoided through ending homelessness. What you need to market is all the jobs that are going to be created with your affordable housing development. In fact, my analysis shows that usually it's four to one. The economic impacts through job creation and companies that you'll be hiring in your local market, taxes paid, earned income, direct, indirect, and induced economic activity is usually four times what the public costs avoided are. So it's the formula of the whole thing that's in your marketing. Go to your governor and talk about you want to create jobs to develop affordable housing. That's a winner. I don't care what state you're in. No, that's such an important point. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I think um, a lot of what I'm hearing that I want to make sure people get out of this is it's not just about knowing where the funding sources are, it's also about thinking through your strategy. And I've seen people, like Greg was talking about, be much more successful with a longer term, bigger strategy than project by project by project, which is our typical thinking from a social service point of view, because it, it allows you to have some unrestricted revenue that also can um, help you in times of things you didn't anticipate during a rehab or a development project. And so that, that helps a lot too. Um, James, uh, I'll add one thing to that. Um, my, I, my anecdotal experience working in a multi-service organization and trying to create a uh, revenue stream for housing, the concern about cannibalizing um, donors that would have otherwise given to the social services, um, I found that there's, there's a completely different donor and investor base for housing. So you need not um, kind of encroach on uh, the, the donors who are already there providing money for the service side. I, I'm guessing that's probably, I'm not the only one who ran into that concern. Uh, and I, I think there is, at least in my experience, there is a different um, stream of funding. And there, when and where there's a little bit of overlap, it's the kind that is mutually beneficial. Uh, I don't think that there's, I think that's probably, if it's coming up, I think it's something that's easily um, addressable. That's a good point. Um, and, and I want to say one more thing that Greg was talking about when he's talking about jobs, which is such an important part. We need to think broader than just housing people. Um, we also got to think about, like Greg was talking about, that economic impact. What I've seen over and over again is that basically by providing housing and jobs as a healthcare intervention, kind of the topic of this series, we are seeing people get better faster and they stay better longer. And that's just the bottom line and projects over and over again. So the reason why that's important and why it's important to understand the economics of this is because 
when you talk from a business point of view around specialized populations, it takes the judgment out of people um, in terms of saying, well, I don't know that that person is necessarily worthy of this investment or they need to work harder for me to invest in doing that. If you start by saying this is financially the right thing to do, you tend to not even have that discussion. I see people shaking their head and I think that's been mostly my experiences. If I start by saying here, this is the best thing to do financially for this community, you tend to have less judgment and less not in my backyard syndrome that you, that you have to butt up against. And I think that's really important for people to understand when they talk about funding and development sources is the way we approach things and we talk about jobs as opposed to the type of services we're gonna give people. We talk about getting people off the streets. People tend to understand those things. So, um, so let me just keep it going because we're going to wrap up. I'm going to ask you one more question around here. I don't see if anybody has questions, please add them in the chat room. I'd be glad to address any questions because we've thrown out just the whole idea of this conversation is to just get you started with concepts around funding and development. Clearly, there's a lot of them. So if there's something we can answer either now or later, we would be glad to do that. Jennifer, I'm going to go to you and I just want to talk a little bit, I just kind of this last question. Where would be, based on your recommendations, um, what would you tell people to kind of get started with thinking about? What's a good starting point for an agency interested in getting into the housing world and understanding funding and development? Where would you tell them to start? So I, I would tell them to start uh, with the tax credit piece uh, because it provides so much equity into deals that uh, you can't hardly replace that piece. I would start there. And then I would try to, uh, a piece that we, we didn't talk about is asking foundations mm -hmm. um, to come into the mix to do your service uh, coordinating piece of it. And then trying to, because HHS is also a resource Yep. Health and Human Service is also a resource where you can you might be able to get some of those services with matching grants from foundations. So I would I would go after those dollars together. Uh, one on the site where you're gonna you're gonna use that for services, and the other on the side where I need to start uh, Life Tech early because those equity dollars are valuable. Um, uh, for what you're going to do. You just can't hardly, you, you can't hardly get to those low rents without having uh, life tech in place. That's right, that's, that's good. Jocelyn, what about you? Yeah, I would agree with Jennifer. If you have any interest in development, it's best to start early just because of the time that it, the time commitment that it takes. We're looking at a project that we just submitted a month ago that probably if it gets funded we wouldn't even we won't even see it constructed for another three years and so the the time piece of it is one of the biggest difficulties with development you have a vision for something you want it to happen soon so start early and then also um i i think the other this is probably off topic but the other thing i would say is the vouchers um like the project-based vouchers and things like that have a lot of have often have stipulations and things like that. So if at all you can like layer the types the different types of vouchers that you have or not do a project with 100% project based vouchers, it's probably in your best interest just because then it eliminates a lot of the people that you were wanting to serve in the first place. And so 
working with your public housing authority to get rid of those bar barriers is one way to deal with that, but also just um, understanding what their rules are up front because we get into a project and we realize after the fact that the public housing authority is a little bit stricter than um, than is often understood. So those are my two kind of pieces. Okay, that's good. Jared, what about your advice? Yeah, so I think um, I would when endorse that. I would also echo something Greg said earlier, which is uh, identifying what it is that you want to do. If you're interested in serving uh, independent living populations on some level of uh, low income status, if you're interested in shelters or emergency care, I mean, whatever that is, identifying what it is that you want to do and then finding people who are already doing it. Um, and somebody mentioned NeighborWorks in the chat. I think that's a, a great place to start. Uh, the National Low Income Housing Coalition. I mean, once you know kind of what it is that you want to do, getting into some of those coalitions and finding other people who are doing that work and then visiting with them, um, especially if you're in a different state or territory altogether. I mean, I found most uh, housing groups are, are pretty collaborative regardless, but especially if you're not encroaching on any of their geographic territory, um, then most everybody's willing to share. Uh, so just getting a sense of what you want to do and finding somebody else who's doing it I found to be one of the best ways to really kind of get your hands around how big it is, uh, what the moving pieces are, and what the, the linchpins that you're going to need in place are before you actually launch. Yeah, good. Greg, what about you? So I really just want to start at the beginning, okay, because, um, you know, the first thing is who are your stakeholders? Yep. Who, is make, who makes up your board of directors? Do you have the right people in place? Do you have the right supporters? Um, so you want to make sure that what you're doing is on mission for your organization. Um, is this something that you should even be going into? Should you be considering housing development as a part of the mission of your organization? And then can you get the right people at the table? And my recommendations would be people like bankers and lenders and real estate brokers and insurance professionals and risk management analysts and loss prevention and, and getting those right people around the deal to to consider your risk and to mitigate your risk and to evaluate your financial models. When you put out there pro forma, do you have the right finance professionals looking at your projections, your multi-year projections? And then do you have the organizational capacity to do this? Can you operate it? Do you have the right team in place? Uh, what's, what's your capacity as an organization? Are you going to be the developer? Are you going to also be the owner and the operator? Well, now you're in the property management business, and that takes some really careful consideration. Property management is a big deal. So if you're going to be the ongoing operator, you got to understand, are you going to be able to put this team in place? And so what I want to say with all of that is start small. Start small. I say go after some private money, do an acquisition and preserve some affordable housing in your market and get your toes wet and just kind of step into the market and determine, can you do this? Can you ramp up and build the organizational capacity? So think about that. And you might be able to leverage some money. You could go after a SAMHSA grant to leverage some services or something. So I, I, I think think about your mission and your board makeup and your focus and your capacity to do this. That's your starting place. Yeah, that's, those are all good advice. And <clears throat> I think what I want to spend two minutes kind of reiterating uh, for people that are on the call is, um, this is usually the area, this subject is usually the area where people feel most overwhelmed, particularly in social services. And so I like the advice of starting small. What I usually tell people to start with when I'm consulting on a project is what do you bring to the table? 
we all know the need. Everybody needs housing, no matter what population you're serving. So start with what are you good at and what do you bring to the table? And I think all of you mentioned at some point, what role are you willing to play? So like Greg was talking about, are you going to be the social service provider? Or are you gonna to try to dive into property management? Those are two totally different roles um, and, and you have to think about different things. So I guess the advice I have, which is, is probably from working with all of you is really, you don't have to be the expert at all of this stuff. You just need to know the right people to ask. And that's kind of the point of doing this series is I still in 17 years, almost 20 years now of doing this, would not low income housing tax credits just make my head spin. I would call Joslyn or I would call Greg and I would say, hey, listen, so you don't have to understand everything your job, if you're really trying to advocate for people with addictions or people that have uh, severe and persistent mental illness, is really to understand the industry and who are the players, like Greg was talking about, in your area that can help you kind of find what you need. And we just I just saw on the chat uh, by Edwin Cooper, you know, talking about project-based vouchers and talking with your pub public housing authority. That's always a great place to start. Is really they understand the industry. So start there and see what type of partnership or what do they not have that they need that you can leverage. So I, I tell people um, to not feel like you have to, it is overwhelming, it's a lot to take in and you can learn about it, but give yourself time to learn about it as you go because the funding and development piece is, is, is really something that I've had to learn myself personally over a long period of time. And I think everybody in here has, has probably felt that as well. I also want to go ahead and mention that SAMHSA um, also provides t uh, technical assistance um, in, in a lot of areas. And so look at SAMHSA's website when we talked about the feds, you know, HHS, like Jennifer was talking about also. Jennifer, did you have any um, anything else that you wanted to add there too? Since I can't see your face, I want to make sure I'm going to start wrapping things up. Is there any last minute comments you want to add on this for people to know? Uh, no, I think the only thing um, I would add is the same thing everyone else has said. Uh, you don't have to go this along, alone. A lot of people are out here that would love to, you know, help um, answer any questions. It's a pretty small community and of uh, folks, and and they all all are always willing to help. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and do the wrap up here. I want to, I really want to thank everybody because this gets to be a, such a complicated subject. So I appreciate you guys getting on the call and sharing your experience with my guest panelists today. Um, this has been good starting points and hopefully people that were listening could take some words and, <clears throat> and uh, follow up in their community with it. We will be sending a follow up email after this session with the link to the recording and recommended resources. Materials will also be posted on the Mid-America ATT website. Um, you can get that too. I want to remind people our last session is scheduled on November 6th. And really what we're trying to do in that last session is um, called it how to get started is to kind of wrap up the advice from the first five sessions, kind of recap and start talking to people about what can you do kind of as heard people talk about today, not feel so overwhelmed and really advocate for more um, affordable housing in your community how do you play a role in using housing as a healthcare intervention? So thank you everybody for spending your lunch hour with us. Really appreciate it. Um, we'll go ahead and post all this stuff and I'm gonna go ahead and wrap just a couple minutes early. If you have questions, you can still put them in the chat. Thanks everybody, really appreciate it. <laughs>